I'm Kimberly C. Paul. As I travel throughout each state, I realize that death is just a moment. It is how we live until that moment that matters. Finding connection with friends, family, and complete strangers. Journey with me. This is the Live Well, Die Well Tour. So here we are sitting in the NHPCO's uh, exhibit hall, and I was fortunate NHPCO's a sponsor of mine, and they gifted me an exhibit booth. And what I try to do on this Live Well, Die Well tour is I try to invite sponsors to come and share my space. And Amy from the National Post Paradigm took me up on it, flew all the way from Oregon. And uh, I think we had a pretty good turnout, don't you? Yeah. The booth was constantly busy. This was really exciting. I, I don't know if it was because of us or Haven. but <laughs> It was Haven. Yeah, I know. But we Haven wheeled them in and, and then we... we kind of talk to them a little bit about what we're doing. She's a good ambassador. Uh, absolutely. Uh, Cabot Cheese thinks so too. So tell me, you know, there's still a lot of misconceptions when it comes to uh, this kind of national post paradigm. And, 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 and I just, I'm really happy that you're here so we can kind of talk a little bit about the myths, but also give some facts about, you know, what is Pulsed? And, you know, there's so many different names. But let's first start off about you. You are a lawyer. Yes. But how did you get into this whole end of life thing? I've always been fascinated with medical ethics. Uh, that was something I've been interested in since I was around seven. And when I went to undergrad, one of my degrees is history, focused on history of medicine. Um, so history of medicine was, was fascinating. Um, I was actually accepted to the University of Washington for their medical ethics program, oh, cool. which is a philosophy degree. And then I realized that having a JD might be a little bit better for my long-term career. And um, gotcha. so I switched, focused on health law. And then I was in-house counsel and also providing advice to the Center for Ethics. I earned a certificate in ethics. And then this position came open for serving as both the leader for the Oregon Pulse Task Force, as it was known at the time, and the National Pulse Paradigm. So ethics is a big thing. Yes. I love ethics and I love to uh, educate people so there's not an ethical ever problem. So you kind of like <laughs> you work work yourself out of a job. But I love the conversation around the table when it when ethics um, are involved, especially in the healthcare system, which are, happen probably every day. So talk to me, you know, when did the National Pulse Paradigm, when did that happen? What year? It started in the mid-90s in Oregon. And what you had were EMS, emergency personnel in the field, that were treating patients who they felt might not want our standard of care, which is doing everything possible and appropriate to attempt to save someone's life. Right now, and at the time, we had advanced directives. But what an advanced directive means, even if you fill one out, is that you're still going to be given standard of care in the field, attempt to save your life, brought to the hospital where they'll stabilize you. And at that point, that's when they'll look at an advanced directive, identify your surrogate, and figure out a treatment plan. But you're already at the hospital. And so they were thinking there was a possibility of creating a system whereby people who are seriously ill or have advanced frailty can even say, I don't want to go to the hospital. I want to be made comfortable where I am. Or, you know what, I'm fine going to the hospital, but I really don't want to be in an intensive care unit and on a breathing machine. 
but you know, I still want antibiotics. And so they created this medical treatment order. And over the next few years, it evolved into what we now known as what we now know as the pulsed form. So, but a lot of people have renamed this form in a lot of different ways, and it's confusing. So, talk to me about what is this called in other states? And I know, I know, there's many, many names, but what is what is the like the top five names that are being talked about that's pulsed, but it's call it like in North Carolina, we call it most, um, which is ridiculous. Why, why can't we get all on the same page um, when it comes to the 50 states uh, calling things the same thing? So at least when I'm in D.C., like we are, and I get hurt um, or something tragic happens to me and I go to the hospital, they know what a healthcare power attorney is instead of a proxy or agent or it's so many different languages. And I think that's on top of people not wanting to talk about this conversation then we muck it up with all these different languages and, and names. So talk to me a little bit about uh, what are some other names that the National Pulse Paradigm does represent in different states? Sure. We've got 13 different names right now and five different colors. So that is quite a bit. You can find the full list on our website, um, pulse.org map. I can't say the top five, but I know that most people know either pulsed or most. And there's been variations because as the program has developed, for example, Oregon started the term meant physician orders for life-sustaining treatment. They've since changed it to portable orders. But some states saw that and said, you know, actually, it's more accurate to say medical orders for life-sustaining treatment. Others people don't like that life-sustaining treatment piece because they felt like that had some judgment in it. So it's just an interpretation of the states as the program has evolved. I can say that we are encouraging people to consider more uniformity and consistency. So for example, I have a grant from the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation to create a single national form which would be known as PULST, or a portable medical order. And I've been working with all, I've invited every single state to participate in creating this document, giving them opportunities to review. And my hope is in time, we can eliminate that because we have, having so many different forms means it's complicated for patients, it's complicated for healthcare professionals who need to keep track of forms, be able to identify them. It's complicated for quality assurance. We have a hard time doing research from state to state. Mm, and that's a good point. Policy and education. So there's a lot of reasons why having something similar, but at the end of the day, it's really for the patients because even if you're seriously ill or frail, you still travel right. or you live on a border between states or, you know, there's a lot of different reasons and we don't want people to have to get more than one form. Yeah. And even even the physicians and the clinical staff, they travel to other states and work in different hospitals. And it is confusing when you've worked from somewhere and you call it pulsed and you get to another state and it's a whole different sort of language. So I, I can see the consistency and I'm, I'm glad that we're working toward that. But this is where even I struggle. Um, you know, compare advanced care planning with the POLST. Well, advanced care planning is the umbrella term. Okay. Underneath advanced care planning, there's really three buckets that I like describing. Okay. Yeah. The first bucket is standard of care. And this is what happens if you do nothing, which is absolutely your choice. You never need to complete an advanced directive or POLST, but you should know that those options are out there for you. So again, our standard of care is to provide everything medically appropriate and possible to attempt to save your life during an emergency. So if you do nothing, that's what you get. The second one is advanced directives, and those are legal documents. Again, to your point about language, it can be called an advanced directive, it can be a living will, it can be healthcare proxy. Agent, well, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of different terms because some of the documents allow you to name a surrogate or a proxy and talk about your advanced care planning wishes. 
other places, you have to have one document to do one thing and one document to do another. We have a lot to fix. Yes, we do. Um, but from the language standpoint, I'll, I will do a shout out to the Johnny Hartford Foundation because they have committed a grant for three years to work on trying to come up with more consistent language. So I'm excited nice. to see where that yeah, goes. Yeah, that's great. Um, and then so that the second bucket was those legal documents. The third bucket are medical orders. And those are do not resuscitate orders and pulse forms. And those are the ones that EMS can follow. So to appreciate the difference, the biggest difference is advanced directives, EMS cannot honor that in the field, won't be looked at until the hospital with a DNR or a pulsed. The minute you have the, the medical issue, they look at it and they're following that document. Wow. And also uh, another thing is this is a physician's order. What does that mean when it comes to those forms? Well, it's not just physicians okay. because in most states, it can also be signed by a physician's assistant or an advanced practice registered nurse, or it, there's a couple of different names for those nurses, NPs, uh, nurse practitioners. So it's, that's one of the reasons that we don't use physician orders anymore. It's, it's, a, it's a team process um, because, and we, we want to emphasize that not only do you have the person signing it, which is a healthcare professional that has to be licensed in that state to do it, but this is um, a conversation first and foremost, and social workers and chaplains can have a role in helping the patient process what they're what their diagnosis is, what their medical condition is, or even thinking about what does what does quality of life mean for them? And once you have that framework, then you can really talk about the treatment options, what those options mean, and do they match with what your your goal and your vision for your own care and your um, the rest of your life is? Well, the the interesting thing is that you are uh, the executive director. This is a nonprofit. Yes. So I love you guys. I've always uh, respected your work, but it takes money to do this work. Yes. And so how do people get involved? I know you were mentioning earlier that I have to mention it, that one state uh, decided, you know, it took what your budget, $8,000 in a, in a, and so if each state would write a check for $200 or $250, it could cover the administrative and everyone can, can contribute to the Pulse Paradigm movement. Um, but you also need, you've mentioned foundations and you mentioned grants. You know, this, this does take a lot of grassroots effort. So talk to me, A, how are you funded? Um, and then how do you hope to bring awareness for other people to get involved with the funding aspect of the Pulse Paradigm? Sure. Um, so we're mainly funded through grants, and we have been for a long time. We have um, many amazing funders. I've mentioned Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation, the John A. Hartford Foundation, the California Healthcare Foundation has supported us for many years, the Retirement Research Foundation, and Archstone, um, Archstone Foundation have been our key funders. What we are trying to do is expand to other grantors or consider other partnerships that we have. There are a lot of people in this space that use Pulsed for their own businesses. And since we are a nonprofit and we are really built on a model of sharing among all the states, um, if we can get those the people that are making money off of Pulsed to contribute to help make sure that our standards are in place, um, that would certainly be appreciated. We have consciously not gone down the membership role because um, pathway, because many states are still working to build their own infrastructure. They're working on a volunteer basis. And so that's why we've only made asks for states to uh, donate. And the state you were talking about was Minnesota, which we appreciated them um, just dividing the 8,000 by 50 and giving us what they felt their, their version or their fair share was. You know, it's, it really is about volume. 
And, you know, and there is no small gift when it comes to supporting a nonprofit and a movement. So even if you're a listener and you want to send a $10 or $25 check to donate, this is a nonprofit. It's tax tax deductible. But it's also it's it's informing people on how they want to end their last days facing a serious illness. And so talk to me a little bit about what you've seen this form do in an acute setting. Yeah. So first, um, yes, every little bit helps. And I'll just emphasize that we have a very lean budget. So every single amount is going to go very, it's going to go far. We don't have a lot of overhead. Um, so it goes actually into the programming. In terms of how it plays out, there are a couple of states that have registries. And from that registry data, we're able to see what impact Pulse can make. There's an article that was written by the Oregon folks in um 2014 that was published in the Journal of American Geriatric Society. And that looked at two years of, I want to say 2010 and maybe 2011 of registry data. And what it did, it was comparing people who died without uh, pulsed and then people who died with, and where did they end up dying? And the numbers were pretty interesting because if you died in Oregon and you didn't have pulsed, you had a 34% chance of dying in the hospital. But if you had a pulse and you had filled it out as comfort measures only, meaning that you didn't want to go down to that, go to the hospital, the chances of you dying was decreased by an insane amount. And I apologize, I can't think That's of it. That's okay. But and just, if you filled it out saying you wanted full treatment, meaning that you were okay going back to the hospital, it actually went above that 34% mark. And so there's... Um, there's something to look at there about the impact of where you spend your final days with how you completed the post form. Well, you know, the, I keep hearing the same stat and it never changes, which I, I, I feel like sometimes, am I making a difference? Are we making a difference with this end of life movement? I know we see, you know, almost 70 articles in the New York Times about death and dying over the last two years. And, you know, there's a lot of movements, the death doula movement happening, the pulse paradigm movement happening. But it's like the same stats. It's like 30% will chat and do it and and say they want um, or eight, I think at the stat is 80% want to die at home and only 30% actually do. And I don't understand that because if I know I want to die at home and if I'm facing a serious illness, I'm going to do everything possible to make that happen. I don't think people know what they need until it's a crisis. Mm-hmm. How do we start looking Far in in the past or in the future, how do we plan for something we don't know we should plan for? And how do we get that word out? Well, I think doing the work that you're doing, traveling around and, and doing these podcasts. And I think it's important. So we want to encourage everyone. And today is National Healthcare Decisions Day. So this is fantastic. We want to encourage everyone if they want to have an advanced directive. And again, not everybody does. Um, I think the California Healthcare Foundation had done a study a few years ago that said, Um, 78% of people or 82% of people want it. So we have to recognize that there's a segment of the population that just is not interested and be okay with that. But for the people who are interested, letting them know what's out there, um, what resources are available for them, encourage an advanced directive. Pulse is really just intended, again, for the people who are seriously ill or frail, who are considered to be at risk for a life-threatening clinical event because they have a serious illness. And with those are the people that you can say, this is what's going on with me medically now. 
this is what it's going to look like in a couple of years or a couple of months. Being able to talk to your doctor about what is the future for you, what are the likely emergencies that you will have so that you can fill out a pulse saying, you know, if you've got a chronic heart condition and the expectation is you're going to have a heart attack, what does it look like for you to be in the ICU? And you're able to talk about it with more specificity than you or I are right now because right. we're healthy. Exactly. And so they can make a decision that, yeah, you know what, I'm okay with the risks of being in the ICU or I'm not right. and filling it out. But a lot of it is just coming down to awareness. Pulse is still relatively young. And if you go to our website, um, we've got a map showing the adoption and how much it's used it's in a each great map. state. Yeah. And you'll see a lot of states are still at the pilot program level. There's a couple of states that don't yet have forms out. So part of it is education and awareness within the healthcare profession and then patient demand for it that in time, um, the hope is that this becomes standard of care and sure. that it's going to be an option for everyone who is appropriate for it towards the end so that they can choose if they want. I mean, at the end of the day, this is all about patient autonomy, yeah. respect for the individual and giving the individual the opportunity to give a gift to their family. Sure. So there's no questions during that crisis that you mentioned. Well, you know, this is the crazy thing and the misconception of advanced directives, which includes this piece of National Pulse or, you know, the most form. Uh, just to be clear, most is not an advanced directive. Yes. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Sorry. Uh, legal document versus medical. We want to be very clear. They're all advanced care plans. That's right. Not directives. Um, so, but a lot of people feel like they fill it out um, to stop treatment. Mm -hmm. but you can fill this out to say, I want treatment. Yeah. You know, it's, and I think that's the big issue is like some people are like, well, what if I get in a situation that I filled this out and I change my mind? What, what do you recommend? What, what happens? But, you know, thank you for asking that because one of the biggest pieces of Pulse is that this is a very fluid document. We know from the registry data that about 15% of forms filled out in Oregon, for example, every month are changes and revisions to a previous version. Oh, and great. Pulse can go both ways. So one of the things to think about is you're diagnosed with an illness and maybe at that time you just want to emphasize you want full treatment. So that's how it's filled out. As things go along, maybe they're not going well and maybe you say, okay, I really want to go down to this limited treatment or select treatment or even to comfort measures. But then also say that a clinical trial comes out, all of a sudden you're doing really well, you can go back to full treatment or you can get rid of your form entirely. Patients always have the right to void their form. If you want to change it, you'll need to talk to your healthcare professional. Um, also, if you void it, you want to tell your healthcare professional so that they don't keep a copy of it. But the idea is that this this is supposed to change. Um, we encourage reviews every time you talk to your healthcare professional, every time you are admitted or discharged from a facility, and whenever you change your mind. Oh, that's great. Now, again, even here I'm sitting and having trouble with the language, and I feel like I, <laughs> I, I'm in this industry. So let's really clarify mm -hmm. um, the language again. Advanced care planning is what? The umbrella. That is anything that you're talking about with what happens to you in the future. Again, three buckets, your standard of care, legal documents, and medical orders. And directives are specific to? Those are the legal documents. General wishes and how you identify the person that speaks for you when you cannot speak for yourself. And the medical order is? That's the do not resuscitate or pulse form. And that's what tells EMS what to do. And those are really, again, intended for people who are seriously ill or have advanced frailty. And that, I think that's really important for us to repeat because so many people, it's confusing to us in the industry. And so I, I really want to specify how important there are three buckets under the advanced care planning and, um, and POLST is, is a medical order under that. Um, so 
Talk to me a little bit about what's next. Well, um, we're still evolving. So part of it is helping every single state implement a quality program, getting education in place and making sure that people know how to use it, that they're not using it for everybody, um, making sure that EMS recognize it, can honor it, et cetera. Um, nationally, we're trying to create this national forum, trying to make more uniformity and consistency across all states, making it easier for patients. Um, we are working with a lot of technology folks, um, Epic and Cerner are the big ones, but also a lot of um, vendors, health information exchanges, and other industry leaders, including the Veterans Administration and the oh, federal wow, government, great. to integrate Pulse within technology. So integrating it within electronic medical records or registries. A lot of states are considering creating one. We're looking at what does that look nationally. Or um, for patients, there's a lot of ventures vendors interested in making sure that you have access to Pulse on your phone. Oh, so cool. how is that connection happening so that that access is there? Um, and then, of course, working with emergency personnel to make sure that they know of all the different ways that they can get access to what is a very time-critical document. So let's, let's concentrate on the medical forms right now, the, mm -hmm. the Pulse form. You know, I've, I've heard that some people are very much aware, you know, these baby boomers are always Googling and finding out about what they need, which I think is really cool. And, but they will go to a physician's office and be like, I have a serious illness. I want to do the Pulse form. And the physician's like, what? Yeah. So how, how do we get this whole cycle of educating the physicians about advanced care directives? Um, but also, the individual. I mean, how do we, that's a, that's a big job for a nonprofit on a very limited budget. So what is it going to take for even me as an individual to become part of this movement and educate people in my own community about it? That's a great question. I'm not sure I have the entire answer. We spend um, time putting new information on the website. We're always trying to make it more and more patient friendly, easier to understand yeah. um, because you're right. It is complex. We're talking about a very small area, a small group of people. The more empowered individuals can be and the more they can share with others. Hey, I learned about this. This is what I know. Um, asking their healthcare professionals to be more knowledgeable about it. I think that's a reasonable demand to make. Um, I spend a lot of my time traveling, talking to different folks, like being at this conference. This was fantastic right. to talk to so many people. All of our state leaders do the exact same thing. They are amazing with their education and doing reaching out more locally. And so we kind of have this pyramid thing where it kind of trickles down. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of sharing among the states of um, patient resources. We have a lot on our website. It's continuing to grow. And um, I just think the more that if patients are aware of it, and asking healthcare professionals, that's going to be a big part of encouraging the process. So let's talk a little bit about how do people, A, find you for information? Um, go to post.org, P-O-L-S-T.org. And what if some millionaire is listening to this podcast and wants to totally fund and write a check to you? How, how and, and this is, I should not just say millionaires, even small um, individuals like myself can contribute. Yes. You know, it's collectively together we can make a difference. You know, I'm limited as an individual, but together, if we pull every dimes and quarters and dollars together, we could absolutely radically change this paradigm, this pulse paradigm movement. Absolutely. So, um, so how does someone or a millionaire or anyone who wants to support this organization grow um, 
you support your annual budget. How do we get involved with you that way? Well, reach out to me. My email is amy, A-M-Y, at pulsed.org. Or you can go on our website. It's pulsed.org slash donate. Or you can just go to pulsed.org. There's a donate button there. Um, There's a couple of different ways to do that. Awesome. Awesome. And, you know, if you do email Amy and you say you heard this podcast and you donate money, I'm going to match it. Oh, thank yeah, you. That's awesome. I will totally match that. Um, definitely need to promote that. And I'm to a limit, though. I'm to, <laughs> I'm to a limit. But I, I just feel like together we can be just change the world. And I think it takes all of us. And yeah, I'm happy to have you on Death by Design podcast. So this is awesome. And I'll also say that if you want to support national, we definitely can use it. Um, It'll amplify across country. But if you want to do something more local, definitely reach out to your state programs. If you go to our website, again, you can look at state programs, click on your state. We have somebody listed every state. There's contact information. If there's a website, it's going to be there and connect with them. And maybe you want to get involved personally to help educate, to learn more, to start the program in your facility. There's a lot you can do at the local level, um, including supporting them financially as well. And, you know, I just happen to be on this little thing called Live Well, Die Well Tour, and I'm coming through. And if if you feel like, you know, you want to collaborate us as I move through states uh, to provide some education about the National Pulse Paradigm, I'm sure Amy and me will be willing to uh, meet with you, talk to you, and maybe do something collectively together um, to bring more awareness for this movement. I just thank you for what you do. Oh, it takes a you. lot. Of, it takes a lot of heart to be in this industry right now, and and you have it. And I'm so happy. I want people to provide. Uh, funding, education, get involved, and time is is money. So um, help us really change how we look at uh, end of life and serious illness, and and you too can make a difference. So thank you for showing up this at this conference, and it is National Healthcare Decisions Day, which is very appropriate for us to be in Washington D.C. with all the Congress and the President, and hopefully we can make a a difference. Uh, you know. In a small way and a big way. Yeah, definitely. But it takes one person with a mission, um, and then to collectively we can totally change. Absolutely. Change the world. So thanks so much for coming on, and it's really great to share this booth with you this weekend. Well, or thanks this week. for, uh, for uh, educating about the Pulse Paradigm. I appreciate it. <laughs> Absolutely. Thanks for joining us today. And remember, you're the designer. <laughs>